Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Hi, and welcome back to The Stacks. I am your host, Tracy Thomas, and this is another episode of The Stacks Book Club, where we're talking in depth about ta Coates' book, Between the World and Me. This book is a nonfiction writing, a letter to Coates' son about race and specifically the Black experience in America. My guest this week is Jay Connor, who is a writer and also the creator and co-host of the Extraordinary Negroes podcast. Jay and I dissect the book, talk a lot about race, violence, and the body in America. There are no spoilers this week. This book brings up a lot of issues that we discuss and how we see them reflected in our everyday life. So if you haven't read the book, you can definitely keep listening. We won't ruin anything for you. I wanted to remind everybody about Patreon. Patreon is a website that allows our listeners to contribute to the work we're doing here. It helps to keep the website up, the lights on, and allow for us to have time to create an amazing podcast. If you're able to contribute, I greatly appreciate it. Anyone who contributes between now and August 16th is automatically entered to win one of three The Stacks tote bags. Super easy. Go to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Contribute what you can. Know that I love you forever. Also know you're already entered to win. You don't have to do anything else. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Last little bit. We are now on Spotify and SoundCloud. So if that's where you like to listen to your podcasts and you're listening somewhere else, you can listen to us through Spotify or SoundCloud now. Also, if you're listening to us through Apple Podcasts, please rate and more specifically review the show. Any review goes a really long way to helping us get the word out about the podcast. Here's our most recent review. It comes from someone named Nikki. Nikki says, okay, so first of all, this podcast is dope. I used to be an avid reader and then college happened. This one podcast alone reminded me of the books that I read and loved and would like to revisit as a more mature adult and suggested some books that I would really like to add to my stack. Thanks for making reading cool for those who wouldn't normally read for enjoyment. Y'all are dope. Nikki. Nikki, thank you for taking the time to listen to the show and to write a review. We so appreciate it. And like I said, it really, 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 really helps to spread the word about the podcast. So please take a few seconds, write us that little review. Know that we love you a long time for it. This week, you'll notice we reference questions sent to us from listeners. If you have questions about this book or future Stacks Book Club picks, go ahead and send us those questions. We're going to cover them on the air. So don't be shy. Reach out on Instagram, social media, anywhere, um, through our website. All of that is down there in the show notes. So check it out. Send us your questions. 
And now it's time for my conversation with Jay Connor about Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. All right, y'all, we are back with Jay Connor, writer and podcast creator, host of The Extraordinary Negroes. And this week is the Stacks Book Club. We're talking about Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. Hi, Jay. Welcome back. Hey, I'm happy to be here again. Time for book talk. Let's get it. Yeah. So this book, Between the World and Me, is a letter to Ta-Nehisi's son. Mm Mm-hmm. In some, some what's his Kenyatta. Name? No, some. I think. It's oh yeah, S. Kenyatta's his wife. It's. So, so we read the book. <laughs> um, uh, we definitely read the book, and we really liked it. And he has a son, and we'll find it. Yeah. Um, but it's a letter to his son about the black body in America. Yeah. And it comes at a moment. 2015 is when the book came out. It comes in a moment. Um, in American history that was very focused on the taking of black male and female lives by the hand at the hands of police officers. Yeah. Um, so the book is Coates's examination of what it means to be black in America, what it means to have a black body in America and that relationship to the idea of being white. Yeah. Yeah. What'd you think? I thought one of the things, and I mean, you said this already, is I was fascinated by the repetition of how he frequently spoke about body and the different ways that it resurfaced and what it represented throughout this book, whether it was the black body, whether it was how, you know, space that we take that's violated, whether Mm -hmm. it was, I, I just was really fascinated by the, I guess, the relationship between race violence in the body right and it being kind of an underlying theme between uh throughout the book honestly we can be done because those are the three themes of the book race violence <laughs> body real i mean this book the thing that's interesting about this book that this is a reread for me and also for you yeah. you listened this time yeah second so, time i listened yeah. and he narrates mm-hmm. and you've liked it you liked his performance yeah i think he did a great job of of performing i guess you can that's, that's what, what they doing. call it, audiobook that's, performance. That's what it is. Yeah. I, did, I think he did a great job of performing it because I think one of the best things about you reading your own book is you know how you want it to be conveyed. Mm-hmm. Whereas with somebody who hasn't read it or hasn't written it, they're just kind of going off of what they think it's supposed to sound like. Right. But he's, right. he's very straightforward in it. So yeah. Great. Well, that's, I think one of the things about this book that I really like and appreciate is that there is, he's not talking about a whole lot of things. He's really not. He's really just talking about race, violence, and body. Yeah. Um, and so he he kind of weaves in and out these different ideas, and he looks at these kind of three things differently throughout the book. But that's really it. And he doesn't try to do too much, which I appreciate because I think, you know, edit, self-editing or editing one's ideas and really dwindle, dwindling it down to not a lot is really hard to do, and I think it leads to really effective – point making one of the things that i'm fascinated you know as a writer Mm -hmm. is the fact that he has i shouldn't say he has but he uses a very limited vocabulary in this book Mm -hmm. everything is very much like single syllable words right but it's so powerful in how he uses those words and it's 
with the writing with him is more about language right. than the actual like you know because you see a lot of people that are writers myself included who might use like this big grandiose word and you'd be like oh right but with you tiny use the, the, the thesaurus all the time all the time <laughs> it's like you should have said bad but instead you were like dubious yeah or whatever. Like, uh, i don't even know if those nefarious are yeah. yeah you know what i mean but the fact that he just uses very simple languages to convey these powerful mm-hmm. poignant emotions i mean he talked about like cosmic justice you know what i mean like right. who would think to put some, some of these words together you know what i mean it's right. just like a master class in self-expression right and really tapping into just his analytical mind like right. that's that's why there's always these correlations drawn between him and james baldwin because james baldwin had the same skill set right granted james baldwin is the greatest of all time sure Tahanisi Coates is the greatest of our time. Right. You know what I mean? Like he could be he could be up there. He hasn't had enough time yeah. yet, I don't think. And there's nobody out here seeing him right now. That's for no, damn sure. No. So it's just amazing to see how he views and analyzes uh these racial dynamics and especially how he incorporates detail into like, you know, telling these things. Cause it's like he paints the picture and it reminds you of like uh, uh, like he illustrates people's humanity, like talking mm-hmm. about like, you know, the post-sex cigarettes and things mm-hmm. like that like you just you just see it in your mind mm-hmm. you know what i mean so right. he just he's just a fantastic amazing extraordinary see what i did there yeah uh writer nero <laughs> oh no writer That's um it. but also i think probably part of part of his use of more you know clear concise language also yeah. has to do with the premise of writing it to his like i think 15 year old son maybe not even quite maybe yeah. 14 at the time like I think that that's also, while it kind of feels like just a convention, right? That it's like I'm writing this to my son, and yeah. like you know, he does refer to him as you throughout the book. Yeah. That this is kind of just a convention. It doesn't really necessarily feel like it's a letter to his son. The way that it's written is written for someone who like could a 15 year old could understand this book. Yeah. Whereas I think like you know some of the stuff that he writes in the Atlantic or even his other book, which is essays from the Atlantic. Um, or one of his other books, uh, We Were Eight Years in Power, definitely has a more adult-feeling vibe to it. So yeah. he really, like, took that letter to his son thing seriously, where I feel like sometimes other authors are like, Dear Mom, and then it's, like, yeah, going yeah, on, yeah, and yeah, you're yeah. like, Love me. Yeah, <laughs> no, like, that's, okay. that's real, because, I mean, my kid's three, so if I'm writing something to him, it's going to be way different than if yeah. I'm writing something to you. So right. that's, that's definitely something to take into account as far as how he expressed himself Right. this book. Do you think when your kid is 15 you'll give him this book? Like, do you think, do you think that the things that are talked about in this book are valuable for a young black man? Definitely valuable, but I would hope I wouldn't wait until he's 15 to give him this book. I mean, I think that there's a lot of times you hear people say, which is incredibly ignorant about like, you shouldn't talk to little kids about race and issues. And it's like, if you're old enough to be oppressed and experience racism, you're old enough to defend yourself and, and, and educate yourself about it. So I would definitely hope that over the course of his life, these are life lessons that he experiences well before 15, whether it's for me or, you know, whoever else. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is just this book is just so powerful, man, so powerful. And I was talking to a friend of mine about it the first time I read it and that the argument can be made that it's actually. Emotional labor. Because while he's you know, we talk about the burden of emotional labor whenever we're dealing with, you know, um, explaining issues with race to white people. Mm -hmm. But while this is written to his son, you know, like you said, like you alluded to earlier, this could be um, 
written to the greater, you know, the greater right. whole. Right. And that's why I say that it can also qualify as emotional labor because he is explaining like, this is why we feel this way. This is why we see the world that we do. This is why when certain things happen in the world, we don't react the way we do. Right. You expect us to at least. Right. Well, I'm, I'm maybe I'm out of the loop. I'm not familiar with the phrase emotional labor. Can you give me a little more? Really? Yeah. I've never heard someone use that. Really? Yeah. Um, well, emotional labor is generally a term used to me exerting energy to provide information or solace to you. Okay. Right. So if like, I think you and your husband are a perfect example, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like there might be something he doesn't understand. Right. Okay. And instead of him taking the time to educate himself on it, you right. would say, okay, honey, well, let me teach you. This. Let me show you. That. Okay. That's emotional labor. Okay. So it's like, it's any sort of, um, black splaining yeah. or I guess any splaining woman splaining yeah, yeah. or whatever yeah. to teach someone else where it's like, Hey, have you heard of Google? Yeah. So it's like the effort that you take. Yeah. Sure. And it's most commonly, I mean, I first heard it when women were talking about explaining it to men, Got but it. it applies in, like you said, sure. a multitude of different ways. Sure. I guess there's probably like Asian splaining. Yep. That too. Latinx splaining. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. That's actually good. Latinx splaining. Cause they've got the X right there. I like explaining. Okay. I'm word genius. Um, well, so someone actually brought to my attention, um, someone from Bookstagram, one of my many Bookstagram friends, my favorite place on the internet. Uh -huh. They actually, I asked people, you know, what they were interested in hearing us talk about. And yeah. one of the things was, who did we think that this book was written for? Obviously, he says it's written for his son. But did we, like, they were suggesting that perhaps they'd heard the argument that it was written for white people. And we're both two black people. Um, but... I'd never really thought of it that way. It does feel like it's written to his son. But then when I did start to think about it, it kind of brought up other pieces of writing and or film that are like black explaining things. Like, I don't know if you are familiar with the book, The Hate You Give. Mm -hmm. You are. Mm -hmm. It's about um, a, a teenage girl who witnesses her best friend get, be killed by a police officer. That's mm -hmm. not a spoiler. They're actually making it into a movie making that a movie. comes out in October. Yeah. And I read the book and I read it after everybody was like, this is the best book ever. Oh my God, everybody should read this book. And I was like, oh, I'm going to read it. And then I read it and I was like, and? Yeah. Because for me, as a black woman who's been paying attention my whole life, but specifically like in this time, this post Trayvon Black Lives Matter world, yeah. I didn't really feel like the book taught me a lot and i think that then when i looked back to see all the people who told me like you sh you should read this book everyone should read this book this is required reading it was a lot of white women yeah they don't and, have that experience and then it and then i listened to a my favorite one of my other favorite podcasts which is called um still processing with wesley mm. morris and jenna wortham and they actually were talking about this movie and blind spotting that yeah. just came out and they were talking about how these movies were called like they were comparing it to black exploitation but saying that they're black explaining yeah. movies and how the movies are actually for white people yeah and like this idea of star in in the hate you give she has this conversation where it's like you can't say these things about people because that's racist or like all lives matter is not the same. And it's like, I don't think that that conversation gets had in black circles. Yeah. Like I think black people inherently understand not, not to generalize too much, but like they understand that all lives matter is bullshit. That's a requirement. Yeah. Right. Whereas like, so having that conversation in that book almost 
says like, hey, look at me. This book is not for black people. Yeah. Even though it's written by a black woman and like there are things you can take away from it. And it's a great book. It's a lovely book. And I do think it's great for kids to read it because maybe kids haven't thought about it. But I think like you're saying, your son, by the time he's 15, even if he hasn't actually read the book, you're hoping that through your parenting and through his experience that he'll understand the book. Yeah. And I just think like that. And so thinking about all those things made me wonder, maybe this book is for white people. I don't agree. No, go ahead. The primary reason I don't agree with this is because I know Hanifi Cope. Right. Like he's an eternal pessimist and he's, he's always like, no, I'm not explaining this for you. I'm just articulating how I feel. Right. He's very much like takes that stance. So, and in reading the book, I felt like it was directed towards black fathers sure. as far as saying like i'm taking the time to explain the world to my child mm-hmm. hopefully this allows you to do the same you know serve as like a catalyst or an sure. impetus to do the same for yours sure. kind of like a blueprint on sure. how to do it that's the way i interpreted it no i mean like i said when the person first brought this to my attention i was like this is definitely like i don't think this book is directed towards white people i don't, I don't feel that way at all. i don't feel that way and rereading it i didn't feel that way but it is interesting to also think about like the ways in which like you're saying this emotional labor yeah like if it is an emotional labor then it maybe is kind of directed at white people right but to your point also isn't that a matter of what white people do as far as centering themselves like they can't they can't possibly see something and feel like they're not right it's It's not not for for them them. right you know what i'm saying right totally no it's i do think it's an interesting idea like to think about i agree i think that from what i've read of his like Coates is always he says what he means and he means what he says like like, he's not one of those people to be like "Ooh, i'm tricking white people into reading my book because i know some of the criticism like later on or some of the not criticism some of the praise he got he got so much praise from like white media outlets and white folks and like you know white lady book clubs are all like reading this book and he kind of felt like "Uh uh-oh yeah this was not what i was trying to do like i was not i am not trying to be your teacher but that's what happens. Though. That's what happens because they 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 experience these things and they're like, oh man, we love it when you tell us how how terrible how we terrible are. we are, <laughs> how racist we are. You know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. a, it's almost like a fetish. You know what I'm saying? Because I mean, sure. we experience stuff like that with extraordinary Negroes all the time, where white people will listen and be like, oh my god, it's so refreshing to hear you guys talk about this. And it's like we're not here to refresh. We're, we're not just, refreshing. We're just you. expressing our our experiences. Right. And he's the same way. Do you think that maybe it's something on like I, I mean. So in full disclosure, I am I identify as a black woman, but I am mixed. I'm yeah. half black, half white. So mm-hmm. I have a, a close relationship also with whiteness because yeah. I am I am white as much as I am black, even though I'm black more than I'm white. Yeah. Which is a weird thing to say. Anyways, do you think that part of that, like, oh, this is so refreshing, like this book was directed for us as in white people. Do you think that that comes from a place of not being able to say I was able to get something out of a black thing? So you have to rephrase it to be, this was for me. And it was refreshing for me that someone said this to me versus like, oh, I was able to listen to something that wasn't about me and still glean information from it. I don't think so. I mean, I think one of my famous phrases mm-hmm. that I say all the time Uh-oh, I'm nervous. is that no matter how well-intended, a white person will always default to white. Sure. And inherently, part of that comes from that level of of self-centeredness. Like, well, wait, I think that's what I was saying. Yeah. I was saying, like, as opposed to for a white person to have this self-reflection to be like, oh, I, like, for example, men often say, like, oh, that's a chick movie. Yeah. And, like, I, I don't like How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days because it's a chick flick. 
right? But then, like, they actually like the movie, and they're like, oh, for a chick flick, it was good. Mm. As opposed to being like, oh, that's a funny movie with the female lead. Yeah. Right? Or like, oh, that's a good movie. And so I'm wondering if the same thing happens with white folks. Instead of being able to be like, wow, I really enjoyed that book, they have to be like, well, that book wasn't actually for black people, so I was able to enjoy it. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like changing what the book is to make it something that they can then make it more a white thing. Like to recenter themselves yeah, yeah, yeah. in this book. I mean, it's kind of like how people talk about how uh, the, the, the winners write history, right? Right. You know, it's how I perceive it is how it will be moved on in, in the future. Right. And it's so interesting because the winners do write history, but the best writings are by the losers yeah. right like the most interesting stuff the good stuff is always by the people who have it had experienced something that was less less than fortunate yeah the struggle right that's that's the way to say it yeah thank you See, and i use an easy word like there you go know. you're already a better writer now <laughs> you're a better writer say your say your fa- your famous line again oh no matter how well intended white people will always default to white and Coates talks about good intentions. Yeah. In relationship to good intentions are don't matter. They're dangerous. Good intentions are just an excuse. They're just a way to exonerate yeah. bad behavior. Yeah. And I really found that part um it wasn't something that I didn't know, but it was refreshing to hear it again. Like to really see someone put down in writing like you can say we were good, we were well intended when we to build America, we needed slaves. So it was, you know, yeah. it was someone had to lose kind of thing. Like, we didn't really mean to do that terrible thing. We didn't really mean to, like, have segregation. But that wasn't the intention. The intention was just to have equal, separate communities. It's like, yeah. well, fuck your intentions. Like, yeah. people were getting strung up on trees. Like, yeah. goodbye. I mean, whether it was Japanese internment, whether it was, you know, Native American boarding schools and genocide, whether it was slavery... Good intentions have always harmed marginalized groups right. throughout the course of history. Right. And it's just like, you know, people will sit there and say like, well, you know, I'm not racist and I don't see and, and I'm definitely not that person, but I don't see color. OK, but saying that I don't see color and omitting somebody's individuality is inherently right. destructive. Right. Totally. So even in your good intentions, even your good intentions, you're fucking shit up. Well, right. And Coates says that the good intentions are sacrificed in order to preserve the dream. Yes. And in this book, the dream, the dream. is in capital yeah. T, capital D for the dream. So the dream is an actual thing that he's talking about, not yeah. just like this idea of a dream. And it's not Martin Luther King's dream. I just yeah. want to be really clear. It is the dream. I mean, I took the dream to be this white supremacist society, right? Where whiteness, not necessarily white supremacist in the sense that like everyone's a Nazi, but this idea that white people reign supreme and have the ability to get the things that they want and they have the ability to work hard and they can go to Harvard and they can become a billionaire or they could drop out of Stanford and they could start Apple. Like that the dream is the white person's ability to succeed because of their quote unquote hard work. But in order to do that, you have to sacrifice and that's kind of, everyone else. Yeah, that's kind of the ill thing about the dream is that, like, it's seemingly innocuous. Right. When you hear about the dream, you right. see the dream, you're like, oh, man, this sounds amazing. Right. But then when you think about the steps required in the systemic oppression and the institutionalized racism sure. and everything else that requires the preservation of the dream, it's like, this shit is trash. Right. But also when a marginalized person does it, it's no longer the dream. It's not the dream. Like, black people like Mexicans, Indians, 
fucking anybody. Yeah. They don't have bootstraps. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah. Only people who have bootstraps are white people. Yeah. Like you could be like, I mean, you could be any black unless I guess some black people have bootstraps if they are professional athletes who don't kneel. Yeah. Like those, like Dak Prescott weirdly has bootstraps, you know? Jesus, yeah. But it's true. It's like <laughs> if you are a person of color or a marginalized person, whether you're trans, whether you're Latinx, whatever you are, if you are servicing the dream, you have bootstraps. Ben Carson has bootstraps. Yeah. But like Barack Obama wasn't even born in America. Yeah. Like he was a direct attack on the dream. Mm-hmm. And so he was not afforded even the right to be part of the dream. He had to be squashed, right? And, like, there's this idea that if you're coming for the dream, you have to be removed immediately. You have to be segregated into ghettos or in the Jim Crow South or whatever it is. And it's like that, that, and, and that is this, the whole thing now is, like, this conversation about, like, being woke. Yeah. Right? And, like, wokeness is, like, your ability to see what's going on Awareness, but it's yeah. not even that's not even good enough anymore because no. you can't just see it you have to actively fight against the dream which yeah. was like this book kind of was like that call to oh, action, action yeah call a little action. bit yeah definitely, definitely um so if this book spoke to you and you're a white person that's lovely but then what have you done in the last three years to yeah. to fight against the dream right like if you haven't done anything then maybe the book didn't actually speak to you well, i mean i think that's part of the issue too is that like throughout the course of history the only time racial dynamics changed was one when people of color pushed mm-hmm. and two when white people had an incentive a financial incentive to let up right whether it was the boycotts whether right. it was the uh, the three-fifths compromise right whether it was as far as like lincoln uh, emancipating the slaves so that they could provide labor in right. the war right so that they had bodies to right. go kick you know the the confederate right. ass so i mean there's always been a a, a long storied history of that kind of um, right. that dynamic and that behavior and it also kind of reminds me of you know talking about like awareness like it's always interesting how in a lot of circumstances, they will say like, oh, man, that's that's messed up. But then like there's no subsequent action. Right. The onus always falls on the aggrieved to rectify the mistake. Right. And it's like in one of my last writer's room, I remember one time I walked in and there was some cop shooting because, you know, there's one damn near every week. Every day. <laughs> so I walk in and this woman, um, you know, writer in there as well. She's looking at me and she's just like, oh, I'm just so sorry about this. This is just so I think actually I think it was a kid that got killed by a cop. She's like, I'm so sorry about this. And this is so devastating and so sad. And I don't know how you don't hate white people. And like, if it was my own child, I'd be so disturbed. Just really was like, really, you Mm -hmm. know, understanding. I was just like, wow. And then she just like, so anyway, and then just went on about her day. You know what I mean? Like it was just like an inconvenience. Like she was doing me a favor to, uh, to acknowledge the fact that I was dismayed by it, but she was clear and aware that it didn't, it, it in, in no way interfered with her life. And that's right. kind of the problem. You know what right. I mean? And that's also why police treat us and other minorities the way they do, because they don't live in those communities. Right. You know what I mean? Like their kids, are, they know their kids are not going to have to deal with those kind of situations. Right. Well, and also their job is not their job. I mean, as far as this book is concerned is to preserve the dream. Yeah. They're, their dream preservers at the cost of bodies right taking care of your health isn't always easy but it should be at least simple that's why for the last three plus years i have been drinking ag1 every day no exceptions it's just one scoop mixed in water once a day every day and it makes me feel nourished 
and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And he talks about um, police officers who are who who murder unarmed black folks and they apologize or they don't. And the families of the murdered black folks forgive them. Yeah. And that there's this call for calm and forgiveness and peace and nonviolence. Yeah. And Ta-Nehisi talks about how. He doesn't buy that because it's not just one police officer. Yeah. Like that the police officers are are working as part of the dream. They're in and that well and that they're part of a system and the whole point of them is to do this work. So even yeah. police reform isn't gonna do anything if it's about a body cam. Yeah. Police reform might do something if you change what policing is in this country yeah. fundamentally. But I just thought that was really interesting because you always see that this like black folks are always asked to forgive. Always. Yeah. Always. Yeah, it's I mean, if you look at like the origins of police officers, they right. came from slave patrols. Right. So even in their onset, it was rooted in systemic oppression. Right. You know what I'm saying? And it's just, it's just wild though. I agree as far as like when people tell me that, oh, there's good cops. I'm like, no, because my thing is that like, if I look at my family and one of them is a dickhead, I know who the dickhead is. Mm-hmm. 
is it not my job right. <laughs> to check who that dickhead is sure. if they're acting out when they're in public? So I don't understand how people can say there's good cops that work with the bad cops and do nothing about the bad cops. And right. then they say, well, you don't know what they're doing. Okay, I don't. But I do know that there's plenty of bad cops, and I know that there's no action to get rid of them. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, So there's no good cops. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's And I understand, like... I understand people who say that there's good cops, like my dad's a cop or whatever, but like we're talking about, we're not talking about one individual police officer. We're talking about this idea of a system where people can murder people for no reason and lie about it and get caught in a lie and get paid pension or whatever and like get paid leave and all this stuff. Like we're not talking about your uncle. And the worst part about it is that like a precedent has been set. So like now there's literal protocols that like if I shoot somebody, if I'm a cop and I shoot somebody, if I did this, 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 and this, I can get off. Right. It's like literally cut and dry as far as in the court of law. Unless I do something here to kind of fudge that up over here, then maybe they can hit me with a manslaughter charge. Right. Maybe they can hit me with like a first degree. But nine times out of ten, they check off all the boxes, and the cop already knows. And like, the cop hey, says I was scared. I was afraid. I was afraid. This person did this. I thought I saw this. Right. You know what I mean? And right. they check. They check off all the boxes. It's a wrap. Right. You know what I mean? And I'm I'm a firm, but yeah, I don't I don't buy into this whole like forgiving thing. I feel like forgiveness is earned, and I feel like a lot of times we've been. Well, I mean, historically, we've been lulled into being docile. Right. Um. Because whether it's through Christianity being forced upon right. us or whatever else. You know, we've been lulled into this 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 ecosystem of just like, you know, being suppressed and being okay with being marginalized and not seeking we seek fairness and equality as opposed to retribution. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, it's and like, we're told that we shouldn't. Like that if we do try to res- res- uh go for retribution that we're there's something wrong with us. And and to that point, you know, kind of like to Tiny Coates' point is like all the time I hear about like good conquers all uh, overall. Historically, no, the fuck it doesn't. The right. bad guys always, always win. Right. I mean, look at our country. Sure. We, we sit here and we talk about how great we are. We've done all kinds of fucked up shit all to all. Of, and we're these doing other it right now. And then clearly. we and then we sit there and wonder why people treat us the way that we you know the way that they do or you know react towards us with violence and then act like we're the good guys right and portray ourselves that way like it's not the way that's not that's not honest right and also our country is built on retribution yeah we are we're like the most retaliatory motherfuckers out i mean the whole tea party and (laughs) all that little shit you know what i'm saying i actually talked to my mom about this the other day i was like because i'm a tea drinker i was like america gets on one little fight about tea party and then nobody in this country can even have tea anymore yeah like every other english colony still drinks tea why are we so petty we can't even have tea like because i went to a restaurant and they gave me this tiny tea bag and this huge thing of water i was like do you know how to make tea like, why is this on your menu? And so I was, you know, because yeah. when I went to London, I had great tea. Yeah. But the point being that, like, America America pretends to be somebody that America is actively not. Yeah. And I think that, like, this idea of criticizing America, even for that, is like, oh, you're anti-American or you're not a patriot. And James Baldwin has that great quote that's like, I love this country so much so that I reserve my right to critique the hell out of it. He doesn't say it like that, yeah. but it's something along those lines. And it's true. It's like... Uh, my people i mean i'm my last name is thomas yeah don't think i got that name in africa right like i'm a thomas from louisiana but who knows from where before that and like so i've been my family's been here for hell of long yeah i can critique the shit out of this country if i want to because i am an american yeah and like you can put 
you know, African-American books to the side in the bookstore and you cannot teach African-American authors in school and you can do this and that and you can try to marginalize, but African-American history is American, American history. history. We built this bitch. We built all this <laughs> shit. Yeah, like it's like, it's so crazy to me that we're fighting for a place at in a country that we have, I mean. We I, built it. Yeah, I mean, my husband is very, very white and his last name is Casey and they're Irish and on yeah. his mom's side, they're Jewish. But my people have been here way fucking longer than his people yeah. and like, you know, he not to call out Jake and his family, but like they've had a much easier path to success and harmony. And it's like, but I'm not American. Yeah. Like yeah. why am I African American and you're just white? Like yeah. that's some bullshit. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. I know. It's just, all this obviously gets me like really heated because I feel like for so long, we weren't allowed to talk about race in America. We weren't supposed to, and people weren't listening. And so it's now like that there's this conversation that's going on. I still feel like the conversations be ha being had by other people about us. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think uh, part of the frustration stems from the fact that like, we're the ones that have to have these conversations. Exactly. As opposed to, I mean, a great example is like um, in the future, I'm going to, or next month, I'm going to be speaking on a panel on inclusivity in the podcast space mm. as a pillar of podcasting. Mm. Inclusivity is not a pillar of podcasting at all. If anything, right. exclusivity is a right. pillar of podcasting. So I'm just and I'm just fascinated by that title and also the fact that they only want to involve us whenever it involves issues of race. Right. They wouldn't hit me up and ask me to speak about like branding or sure. you know what I mean? Like it's sure. like we have this one issue that's about this. And now we need a black guy to go speak on this. And it's like they're not having these conversations themselves enough because I mean, my thing is that like a lot of times they don't want to hear it from us because it makes them uncomfortable. Right. If you can't even have it with yourselves. Right. Right. <laughs> then you're too fucking sensitive. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Totally. Like, it's just like that. That If you can't if you can't have these conversations in the privacy of your home with yourself, with nobody right. else around. Sure. That's just like, whoa, you, could, right. you couldn't last a day in the life of myself or you. No, of course. And in the book, Coates talks about um how there's no such thing as a racist like to a white person yeah like that they don't oh i'm not racist i don't know i don't know any racists yeah. i just know of racism like yeah you know in quotes or whatever yeah, yeah. and that's kind of that same thing as it's like well they can't have the conversation because no one's willing to look at themselves and be like oh my uncle's really fucking racist yeah. <laughs> like well i think another another issue that annoys the hell out of me is when white people refer to other races, whether it's black, brown, yellow, whatever, as racist. And they are not able to discern the difference between racism and discriminatory behavior. Right. Because or they're mutually they're mutually prejudiced. Right. They're mutually exclusive because racism has power behind mm -hmm. it. I can fuck your whole life up. I can give you right. increased uh interest rates. I sure. can throw you in jail. There's like, right. There's a line in the book. I could have you arrested. Yeah, like there's like power behind racism. I can destroy your body. If I call you a fucking <laughs> cracker ass cracker, right. you're just inconvenienced. Right. You can go on about you can literally be offended and then go on about your life with no consequence. Right. That's the difference between discriminatory, discriminatory behavior and racism. And the fact that they're not right. able to do that because they feel like, well, this word hurts us. This right. is like, 
you me calling you a nigger. You call me a racist. That shit hurts. So if I call it directed back to you, maybe you can feel that same pain. And right. it's like, nah, player, it don't work that way. Doesn't work that way. You know well, what I'm saying? Right? Because it's like you could call someone a cracker ass cracker, and they could turn around and shoot you and get away with it. Right. Like so, that's the difference. Yeah. Boom. There's, there there's, you go. There's power behind behind that word. So I mean, I'm just always fascinated. And another thing I always find is stupid is reverse racism. Right. The dumbest. How can something be reversed if it's a reaction? to what's going so on some, right right <laughs> right you know what i'm saying so right. it's just like and if anything the true definition of reverse racism would be equality right sure so i'm just like i don't understand where right. that process, i've never thought about it like that but you're right you know what i mean like yeah. people some of the, people want to be oppressed so damn bad it's just like dude enjoy your privilege like why do right. you why are you functioning this i way? just why saw a tweet this morning someone was like it's not racist to call you white it's really not. But people are like, well, it would be, what would you say if there was a white people's network? Like, that's not racist. It's just a bad network, and it's also every network yeah. besides BET. Right. <laughs> like, but you know, it's funny, though. Um, uh, I'm trying to think who. Uh, Ava. Ava DuVernay. Uh, she was saying that she no longer uses the word white ooh. because whenever she speaks about white people, she says she uses Caucasian mm. because white people are offended by the word white. So if she says something honest, the headline is going to be Ava says something about white, white people. people. She's like, so I'm gonna, she's like, I don't use white no more. I use Caucasian because apparently they, they, they're more receptive to that. Interesting. So now if you hear her talk about, she'll say the exact it's same Caucasian, thing in Caucasian and it takes the edge off. So it's kind of like how they feel about the word black. Right. They see black and they're like, Ugh. right. Let's call it urban or like African-American. That's yeah. my favorite when some, when someone's like, so I was with this beautiful african-american woman i'm like are you gonna choke on it just say black like, yeah you can because also i mean i can speak for me i don't i like the word black i feel like there's strength in the word black i also feel like it's more inclusive because african-american is a specific thing i'm african-american but if i came from africa there's white african-american well but also if i came from africa like six months ago I'm probably not, I don't consider myself African-American. I consider myself Ghanaian or South African or whatever, or or Jamaican. Like, I don't think Jamaican folks are like, I'm African-American. They're like, I'm Jamaican. Yeah. And I feel like African-American is just like basically slave black, right? stupid. It is. That's what it is. That's what I It is slave black. When certain white people ask me, like, what are you? Which is my favorite. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm mixed. I'm like, oh, it's what? And I just go, my mom's Jewish and my dad is slave black. Like, stop being nosy, yeah. first of all. And second of all, now how do you feel about it? Yeah. You wish I would have said, oh, we're Eastern European and African American. No. Which I could say, but we're I'm half Jewish, half yeah. slave black. Yeah. But I just, yeah, it's, there's so much in language that, like, I feel that, you know, people of color are, and also, you know, people in the LGBT community are constantly having to, like, walk around these landmines of language, like, yeah. you know, using Caucasian instead of white. Why should I have to say Caucasian for you to hear me? Yeah. You know, like, that's crazy that this, you know, so smart, like, just a genius of a beautiful black woman has to tiptoe around her point yeah. so that you can hear you it. Can hear it. Like, goodbye. But it also kind of plays into um, W.E.B. Du Bois's theory of double consciousness. Have right. you heard that? Yes, of course. Okay, so yeah, it kind of plays into we'll that. Well, tell our listeners that they aren't familiar. Oh, okay, Sorry. well, so for people who aren't familiar with that, it's basically talking about how black people have to form multiple personalities right like there's their quote-unquote black self when they're around black people and then their quote-unquote white self when they're around white people and how they kind of navigate through these different worlds and how they're perceived by white people and how they're perceived by black people so it's kind of like that that 
that whole scenario. Sure. It's like and the movie Sorry to Bother You, right? I haven't seen it yet, yes. but he uses his white voice. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a great movie. To like sell stuff, right? The, He's I, like a phone salesman. Yeah, I did the red carpet for that. Did dope. you? I Was did. Fun? I have to see it. I really want to see it. But right, the double consciousness idea and and also um code switching, all this stuff. Like where it's yeah. like you have you have to learn how to speak different and this is, this is what's crazy about that is that like there's people that reach out to me mm-hmm. hit me up and i have to think about how i respond to mm-hmm. them via email because they don't know me and right. i don't want to portray myself in a quote-unquote negative light right like they're hitting they're reaching out to me right and you're still and i still feel like editing. oh uh, no nah, i shouldn't say what's up or that's dope or they're not gonna know what dope me you know what right. i mean like right, and, right, right. and that's what well, Being, even having this conversation right now with you, I'm kind of like feeling a little bit nervous because yeah. like this is a new podcast yeah. and I'm black and I think my listeners know that. Yeah. But also I know I have a lot of white listeners and I feel like I'm currently like, oh, well, am I saying like, am I going to offend people or like, am I going to make people uncomfortable? And I just think that's like an interesting thing because this is something, a space that I created. Yeah. Right. Like this is a space that was, and I, I'm not exclusive with who listens to the show. I think yeah. reading is a great way to learn universal. About, yeah. And I think it's a great way to learn about other people's experiences. Like yeah. this book is a great book for people of all colors, shapes, sizes, identities to read, because I think it informs on one group of people's experience. experience. You know, not that this necessarily speaks to every black person in America, yeah. but I still am thinking as we're having this conversation, I'm like, Ooh, white people aren't going to like that part. You yeah. know what I mean? And like, that's crazy. I've been experiencing that for about two years. Sure. I guess that's part of just podcasting in general. But I also think like part of the reason that I try to pick diverse books on yeah. this show. And I really mean that like we read books written by black men, white men, you know, I, as much as I am like, I don't want to read anything written by white men because they have too many books. But I also feel like to really truly be inclusive, you have to include all different identities. And I'm a black woman who reads all different things. And people, when I first launched this, were like, oh, is it just going to be black books? And I was like, no. But, but isn't that crazy, though, that that's, that assumption's even made? Right. That like, I would just read black books. I'm like, no. Like anything that is of that, anything that comes from other is inherently specific to, to, to that thing right like that's that's crazy right it's it, crazy it makes no sense because it's no like sense. whenever they do it right and they it specifically purposely exclude everybody else maybe right. maybe that's why i don't well, know no, but i think even like when when white people are inclusive right it's like you're able to read books by all different kinds of people but i have to just read black books mm. right like you can have a diverse book club yeah. and you read diverse things yeah. but if i have a diverse club it's got to just be like black books. But that is interesting, though, how anything that is associated with a black person is automatically seen as black. Right. Right. If I'm the star of a TV show. It's a black show. It's a black show. Immediately. Automatically. Automatically. Even if it's like, like, I think people think Scandal is a black show. Yeah, it's not. I mean, she's like the only black person yeah, and her yeah. dad. Yeah. <laughs> the other black guy had to go because he beat up his wife. So yeah. sorry. Bye. See you later. But like. It's automatically black just because there's a black lead and i think to the to the point about the book though is that like oh yeah we're talking this about this whole book. yeah this <laughs> but this whole like feeling of having to like navigate between these different worlds and protecting your space and your bodies i mean a great example of that is like if we're in this room me you ashley whoever mm-hmm. five deep 
a white person walks in, we automatically feel like we need to adjust how we express ourselves so that they can understand and feel comfortable how we're how we're doing and 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 make sure that they're comfortable and they're not threatened. But if the exact opposite thing happens, they're going to continue to talk exactly how they were before yeah. and be themselves. I was at a party last night and uh, there was a white girl there and she was late to the party and she walked up to our our black friend and she was like, "Sorry, I'm on CP time." And I was like, "Did you slap her?" I, I actually just walked away because she's a good friend of the host of the party. But I literally was in the conversation and just walked away because, like, could you imagine I walk and I was like, sorry, I'm just being a cracker. Like, you'd yeah. be like, excuse me. And I am half white. Like, yeah, I have yeah. as much ownership over being white as a as I do black, except for that no one seems to think that I'm white, which yeah. is fine. I don't really I'm not sure that I think that I'm white either. But just yeah. that idea of like the. That you could go up to a, like that white people feel so comfortable saying crazy prejudiced or and or racist things depending on the situation to a black person or a brown person or a person of color to their face but if i ever just saying white people is something that Ava has turned away from because you can't hear her but this girl just like sorry i was on cp time i was like yeah, and true. these are quote unquote people who are woke and you know aware and fight and are hey. resist and this and that and it's like hey. that's the other thing. If get out and uh, sorry to bother you or taught you anything, right? It, it, it'd be your own folks on the left side. Sure. Well, I mean, and that's nothing new either. Yeah. What did Martin Luther King say? Like the most dangerous white person is a is a what is it? Person in the middle. Good intentions. Good intentions. Good All intentions. this stuff. Yeah. And it's it's crazy because. Oh, that's like the other argument that I hear so often is like you said how nothing gets changed like around race unless it has something to do with people rising up, or the marginalized people rising up, and then also economics. But, but the thing that we hear so much is like we need allies. We need these white allies or if it's a woman's issue, we need these male allies or if it's an LGBTQ issue, we need these straight allies in order to make this thing happen. But then you look and you see who the people who are like, I'm an ally and behind your back, they're talking about a CP time. See, but that's why I hate the term allies, because right. I feel like the the metaphor that I always use for allies okay. is like girlfriend, right? Sure. If I'm if I'm hanging out with Tracy and somebody's like, yo, you know, Jay, is that your girl? And I'm like, yeah, that's my girlfriend. If they ask you the same question, you're probably going to be like, no, that's not that's not my boyfriend. Right. I'm actually married. I'm actually married. The same rules apply to an ally, sure. right? You shouldn't tell people that you're an ally. Sure. You should, the, the people themselves. Who need should, the allies should define They you should that. define you that you, you should, was an it ally. It shouldn't be a self-definable yeah, term. Yeah, at all. That's actually super interesting. Ever. Right. Ever. Right. Ever. And just because you're an ally for something doesn't mean you're an ally for everything. Yeah. Like, I consider myself to be someone who likes to stand up for social justice issues. Like, I try my best to speak truth to power and to, like, you know, call things out when I see it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean, like, I will admit here, like, I'm not super woke when it comes to, like, the struggles of people in the Asian American community. And you know so what? like, oh. while I would definitely, if they came to me and they were talking to me about it, I would listen and I would try. I, I'm not an Asian American yeah. or Asian ally, not because I don't want to be, but I just like, I'm yeah. not, but I would consider myself to be an ally for the LGBTQ community, even though we're not supposed to define ourselves as such. Yeah. I would, I would say that I am, yeah. I'd say I'm active in that community. But that's another reason why I don't like the term um, ally, because it feels like, once you've been pigeonholed right. as this person, right. this, this beacon of light, this right. paragon of excellence or whatever, right. then you should that same rules should apply for everything else. Right. And to your point, I'm the same way. Like I noticed that I had um have you ever heard of um 
forgot his name. Uh, Rainier Manning Ding. Manning Ding. Mm-hmm. Um, he's on social media as uh, the love life of an Asian guy. No, I'll check it out. Okay, well, he's this super. Woke, and I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, he's he's like this huge social media mm-hmm. personality, and he's of Asian descent, and he talks about mm-hmm. racism and things mm-hmm. like that. And in speaking with him, I kind of realized like I don't know shit about your community, right? At all. At all. And it's like I need to do a better job of familiarizing myself with things that are going on in brown communities, uh, Asian communities, indigenous communities, sure. you know, uh, Middle Eastern. You know what I mean? And I just made a conscious effort. I added like news, right. you know, news sites that cover that kind of stuff into my daily news feed so right. that I always get something because it's just like, yo, you right. have to. That's why, that, like I said, that's why I don't really like the term ally because right. I feel like you're you feel like okay well i'm this great person right it's like you i'm can an just, ally you can just be a good person right and you can also just be someone who's receptive spots. you could be someone who's receptive to the struggle of others yeah. without necessarily being an ally or cognizant right of. yeah like someone who's like i'm here like i'm open yeah. to fighting the fight with you whatever your fight is it doesn't necessarily make me an ally or just hearing your struggle or yeah. just being bearing witness to your work yeah but it's like I'm an ally for women's rights. That doesn't make you an ally for indigenous people. Who gives the right. same people running around saying they're an ally for women's rights are the same dudes out here calling women bitches. Right. Right. It's Facts. true. It's true. Facts. Right. It's so it's so true. This is like I mean, there's so many things that are floating around in the zeitgeist of America right yeah. now that are around like woke and yeah. ally and like these terms that we hear so much of and it's like really actually unpacking them is has gotten to be the actual work. Yeah. Right. It's not enough just to be like, I'm an ally or I'm woke. The work is actually like, what does that mean? And are you really an ally to that community? And do they think you're an ally? And what are you actually doing besides wearing a pin that says ally? And actually the term ally or the, the, the moniker ally is basically used to make me feel good about myself. <laughs> right. It has nothing to do right. with, with women's rights right. or LGBTQ or none right. of that shit. It's like, I feel good by calling myself an ally, regardless of whatever fucking work I've done. Does that come from like the allied forces? Do you know. think it comes from World War II? Or I, do you think it comes from before that? No, I, I, that the term ally? Well, just like the use of it now. Like, no, I think like it's, using it as like a friend because, nah. like, the allies are, like, friends of the Europeans, and they work together as opposed nah. to, like, the Pe- axis of evil. People, people don't read. I would not give them well, that Well, I don't know credit. if people invented it, but somebody invented, you know. No, I mean, in general, I oh. say people don't read, so I don't think that they would be those kind of historians who would draw that correlation. But maybe the person the who brought the term to the forefront did actually read something. I don't know. I don't know. It would be interesting to think, though, if it actually connects back to American military, military, you know, in a war that had so much to do about, you know— like what we do to the Japanese folks here. All like, I know is people demonstrate amazing ingenuity when either one, they're trying to make themselves look good mm-hmm. or two, they're trying to be racist. <laughs> but two first. They, they come up with all <laughs> kinds of elaborate ways to totally. oppress people. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. We're not really talking about this book, we but are. we are. Because we, like, I just, if you haven't read the book, which yeah. is fine, you know, if you haven't read the book, that's fine. You should read it. This is all stuff that comes out of this book yeah. now when you when you talk about what he's talking about, even though, like we applauded earlier, he's really just talking about violence, race, and the body. But yeah. I do want to touch on one specific moment in the book, which is the it's not it's like a page of writing, but a few people asked me to talk about it and I thought it was really interesting because I almost glossed over it, didn't really make an impression on me, was his feelings about nine eleven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in that passage, he kind of talks about how on nine eleven 
he was like, oh, this thing has happened. And I didn't really feel differently about the police officers who murdered black folks than the police officers and firefighters who were running into the buildings and who were dying because they were all still part of that same apparatus. Yeah. And that, you know, when I think about the financial district of New York, I can't separate it from from 9-11 and current to from from that and the history of that being the slave ports and all the violence that was perpetrated against black bodies in America. Yeah. And ba- I mean, he basically dismisses 9-11 as another thing that is an attack on the body. Yeah. He, he Kanye shrugged basically, you know what I mean? He was <laughs> he just did. like, eh. he was like, this happened. <laughs> it happens. And, and to be, it's funny because I have that same exact response, not to something as uh, of the magnitude of a nine eleven, mm-hmm. but there's times when I see stuff in the news and I just be like, eh, "This happens to us every day." Every day, you know what I mean? Sure. Like, so I can I can understand where it, where it came from, but at the same time, it didn't make it any less like, "Damn, like wow," because right. I mean, to know something of this magnitude, and I mean, granted, we're looking at it from a, a revisionist sure. perspective, um, hindsight rather, um, and but to fact. To know that he was in the moment of and he seeing was in New York. plumes of smoke <laughs> yeah. coming off buildings and all kinds of mass hysteria. And he just kind of like, eh, that's that's fascinating to me. That's amazing. Right. right. And I, I, I don't know. I don't remember when this book came out if this passage was as polarizing or something that people clung, clinged on I'm to sure at the time. I don't remember that. I maybe could go back and look and see if I can find any articles about it. But I feel like 9-11 now has so much attached to it and it has become like almost this moment that has empowered so much of the current form that racism has taken on this like patriotic stuff like it has enabled these visions of the flag and it it's why we have all the flag ceremonies in the nfl right now they didn't used to do that before the war military paid for it yeah they paid for it and so like a like a that 9-11 9-11 was a catalyst for a lot of things in this country, but it also was a catalyst, I mean, if you take it back, for this current iteration of, I mean, 9-11 essentially led to Barack Obama in the backlash to Bush. That was. And then that was a catalyst for the Tea Party, yeah. which led to Donald Trump. So, like, if you really look at, like, this recent history, yeah. this 9-11 thing really as devastating as it was to lose human life and as scary as it was in the moment to have the country attacked in a way that we'd never experienced. Like when you look at it with a little bit of time removed, you are looking at this moment that led us kind of to where we are right now. I was telling my racism. Yeah. I told my homeboy, it's a fascinating time to be a political scientist, but it's a terrible time to be a human being. Yeah. Truly. Just real shit. It's true. (laughs) And it's also hard to talk about this kind of stuff without seeming like, and I'm sure Coates probably felt, I mean, maybe not. I shouldn't say I'm sure because he seems to be a pretty, you know, objective human, yeah, I feel. I like, definitely say so. I would say he feels pretty objectively about the things he feels, even yeah. subjective things. But for me, I'm a little, I like to think of myself as being a little bit more flitty in between. And it's hard to talk about 9-11 as an event and also what 9-11 means and has done politically. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely had such a profound effect on the greater i i mean it's just the, the greater american just i don't even know what the word i can even think of because i mean I it's know. just it's everything the the, the scope the, right. the administration everything it just had such a profound effect in how people are perceived 
It, it's affect people's rights. It's affect right. policies. It's affect, uh, affected laws. Right. It's affected, uh, you know, veteran benefits. Sure. You know what I mean? And like I said, I'm one of the rare few who was there before and afterwards. Right. And before, during, and after. Yeah, before, <laughs> during, and after. And I'm also one of the people who paid a consequence for it outside of having to go to war or whatever else and spending months, you know, in the belly of the beast. There's benefits that I don't qualify for because they're post 9 11. Right. So even though I am technically a post 9 11 veteran, right. I'm a during oh, veteran too. I see. And I'm a before okay. 9 11. You know what I mean? So I mean, there's all kinds of different so repercussions. You just fell like right on that cusp yeah. of those things. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and, the thing, so I was thinking about this book a lot as far as like, well, we're going to wrap it up soon too also because oh, I, I'm loving this conversation, but I'm like <laughs> looking at the clock like, do people want to hear us talk about this for 90 hours? Yes. Like, we're just kind of a spinoff show, like uh-huh. the Between the World and Me podcast. Uh-huh. Um, but when I think about this book, because it was written in this very specific moment in time, 2015, which was like post Trayvon, post Eric Garner, post Tamir Rice, but kind of pre like the Philando Castile, pre some of the more egregious shootings that were caught on tape like the one like uh, like eric garner was (laughs) but like michael brown wasn't like tamir rice kind of was but like it was just like that brief you know those few seconds and then there's the ones that it's like five minute videos you know and like Orlando castile with like the whole post and like his his girlfriend in the car and all that so like there was these were like kind of the earlier ones yeah and so i feel i was thinking like i wonder if this book is going to feel like a time piece, like a period piece in the future. But then as we're talking about it, I'm realizing like Donald Trumpism and, and nationalism. And I don't even want to call it that because honestly it's the same shit that's been going on from before and after, but like this nationalism stuff is all just protection of the dream. It's all just amplification of the dream. It's all just more of the same stuff and enabled through patriotism and our country and make America great comma again. I don't know if there's a comma. There's no punctuation in that community. No, I I definitely think that it will be viewed as a time capsule um, for two big reasons. Okay. One, because of his stature. Okay. And uh, two, because of his stature. Um, (laughs) You know, people have, people hold Tahanisi coats, in such tremendous regard. I mean, he is commonly viewed as arguably the greatest essayist of our time right, right. now. And that's definitely, that's why I say arguably, because plenty of people have different opinions, but right. he's in the top He's two. in the conversation. He's absolutely in right. the conversation. So people, so anything he writes, just kind of like uh, James uh, James Baldwin or even, um, damn, I forgot his name. Uh I see his afro, and I know we don't really rock with him no more. Cornell West. Yes, Cornell West. <laughs> even um, even Cornell West with like how people look at like race matters. Sure. Or right? Michael Eric Dyson. He's in that. Uh, he's in that same conversation. No, when enough. he writes something, people are like, <gasps> "Yeah, cheers, we cannot see. Like, yeah, yeah. we got or stop or whatever. We got to read it." But I mean, like looking in like retrospect, like looking at like the impact race matters had with Cornell mm-hmm. West, or mm-hmm. like the stuff that James Baldwin did in the past. Right. Like, I really feel like people are going to view this the same way. So, but that would be the argument for it not being of a per- being a period piece. That would be the argument for it being like considered like timeless. Like in fifty years, they're going to be reading this, talking about how things haven't changed, like how people read the fire next time. Oh, so you're saying like people aren't going to want to? I'm wondering if people are going to see this book in fifty years and be like, it's still relevant, or if people are going to see this book in fifty years and be like, that was that one moment when Black oh. Lives Matter. Then yeah, it definitely won't be a period piece. I think it I won't was. Be. I think I yeah, it won't be. Okay. I think I was. I was hearing. I was sorry. I was. 
oh my bad not hearing it wrong but i was interpreting it. Yeah. yeah that's fine um because i i agree i think it will have the legs to go a long time because of who he is but also because like the language is so specific and clear and i feel like specificity often breeds the ability to last longer when you get yeah. generic like general i think that become which seems the opposite but when you get specific about something, you're able to kind of insert other specific things into it. But yeah, like he's the dream can be anything essentially in this book, any moment in blackness and whiteness or otherness and whiteness. Yeah. Um, okay. The last thing I want to talk about with this book is just the title. Uh-huh. What do you think of the title? I thought it was interesting how he found different ways to incorporate the title yeah. throughout the course of the book i think it popped up three times it was just three i counted three i have i have it written down on page 115 on page hold on, 65 and on page 28 well it is a short book too. it is a short book yeah but i just found it was interesting how um one it was repeated and two kind of like the meaning behind it changed and shifted because, like, I look at, like, the meaning behind it to mean kind of, like, the world and I, we share a relationship, but we're not necessarily one and the same. You know right. what I mean? Like, the world is is different for how, the world, how I view the world is different than how somebody else might view the world. Right. I don't necessarily identify with or relate to the world. So it's kind of like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's right. what I called from the title. Right. They're all there's all these things that are coming between the world and me. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I, I guess just more so not even those things, but more so his direct relationship with the world. Like he feels like, like he's oh, not like a part of the world. Because there's things that are in because the there way. Are things in the way of it. I see. Okay, that's interesting. I was thinking of it more like I mean, I guess you could also look at it as like this is between the world and me. Like this book is like my feelings about the world. I mean, like this is between us. Yeah. So like y'all can have your own opinion. This is what I'm imparting on my son about how I feel about how shit's gone down between the world and me. Yeah. But it definitely, it has a confrontational feeling to it. And it also has an, like it has an explanatory feeling. And I think maybe that's why he uses it throughout the book yeah. in different ways to show that like it can mean a lot of different things. And I guess, I, I don't know. I like the title, but I also wouldn't know I'd love to hear him explain it. Yeah. But I, I think also one of his strengths as a writer is his objectivity. Sure. Because it's hard not to talk about race and not, like, inject your inherent biases. Right. And get or, all fired up. <laughs> but he's just very much like, this is what happened. Mm -hmm. This is what it is. This is what I saw. This is what I felt. This is what I experienced. And he leaves it up to you to kind of feel a way right. about it. Right. Like, he's just like, this is it. He's, he'll explain why he feels a certain way or why he reacts right. a certain way. Right. But he doesn't really discuss feelings or discuss right. like his interpretation or how he interpreted things. right he you know what i mean discusses it yeah exactly that's so true yeah i i forgot there's one more thing i do want to talk about really quickly he talks about his experience in college he didn't go for long he yeah. dropped out yeah. um he went to howard and he talks about it, he calls it the mecca and he talks about like going to the yard and seeing all these different kinds of black people yeah and he grew up in baltimore and he kind of experienced in his childhood like a more projects gang based black experience yeah. which is one black experience and he talks about how like being put in this place with all these different black people and seeing all these different kinds of black people like black people with you know he has the girlfriend who has like an asian father or something and 
And then there's black people who grew up in homes full of love and not full of fear. And then there's black people who are baton twirlers and there are black people who are Zionists and this and that. And I think that like, that's really powerful because I often feel like what happens is white people, at least this happens to me a lot. And I think it's because I'm mixed and I think it's because, you know, I talk how I talk or whatever, where it's like, oh, you don't sound black or I'm blacker than you because I know this thing. Like, like, oh, you don't know the new Drake song. I'm like, no, I haven't heard it yet. Like, oh, I'm blacker than you. Like, that's funny. Drake of all artists being I don't a know, I made that for blackness. <laughs> I made that up. But you know what I'm saying? Like it's like that white people even want to feel an ownership over how black you are or like how black they are, even though they don't even want to be black. But like that I always tell people who are struggling with identity, because I, I feel like I have conversations with people of all different ethnicities about identity. Yeah. And that you if you are half Chinese you are living a Chinese American or Chinese whatever experience. Yeah. Like, because you are black, whatever you're doing is black. Yeah. And, like, I think that there's this idea that, like, ta Coates would be considered more black than me because he grew up in the streets of Baltimore. Yeah. And, like, that's a black identity that's okay. And I feel like this book does a good job of, like, pointing out, even for him, being like, yo, there's all these different black people and they're all black and they're all here coexisting and like we contain multitudes and here's the actual representation of that. But I do I do think that's interesting in that like you never hear about there being like different levels or layers of white people or no. different levels and layers of uh, uh, Asian people. Um, well, obviously no, there, there are. There's I feel different like you eth- hear that. There's different ethnicities. Sure. But um, well, I, actually, you know, I, I think that's a that's a bad that is, that's a bad example a because bad there example. are different because black people are also different. Like we were talking about, you could be slave back, you could be Haitian, you yeah. could be so you're culturally different. Yeah, but we're all lumped together and we're all expected to know every lyric of every Outcast song and to know how to cook collard greens and to have seen to read have read every Toni Morrison book yeah. and to know how to shoot a gun but only a stolen gun and to know how to you know like all this stuff that we're expected to know because it's black but it's yeah. like this person's like came from Canada like six months ago in well, the Caribbean well even that and acting as like a spokesperson for your entire race sure in a conversation well, or a conversation else. about podcast yeah. inclusivity yeah right like <laughs> you're black you tell us you tell us you know right. what I'm saying but I think another thing that kind of piggybacking off the his, his school experience I like how he touched on the themes of education and fear earlier right. on in the book. Right, and compliance. Yeah, and he talked about, because, I mean, education is so, nobody ever wants to admit it, but education is entirely predicated on your zip code. Sure. The quality of your education is entirely 100% predicated on your zip code. If I live in a very nice, affluent neighborhood, I'm going to a great fucking school. Right. If I live in a very poor neighborhood there's a very high likelihood the school i'm going to go to is questionable right unless you have money or an advocate yeah those are your only other options yeah so it's just it's just interesting how he kind of talked about that and then also how like he talked about how people well you know his people in his neighborhood and his environment living in fear and how fear kind of cultivated who they were as people and right. even the fact that they didn't even—they weren't even cognizant a lot of times of the fact right. that they were moving in fear and reacting out of fear 
and living in fear, but it's still defined. It was still like ingrained in their DNA and their right. character and who they are. Like it was right. just, uh, it's just powerful shit. Like the way he analyzes, yeah. and views the world. I- I'm so sad because we probably should go. It's been like over an hour. But here's the thing: if you haven't read this book, this is one of those books. And I don't say this a lot. This is one of those books that I probably think that if you're listening to the show, you should read. I don't think everyone in the world needs to read this book. I don't know if it will work for everybody, but if you listen to the show and you're a reader and you're interested in these things and you've gotten it this far to us talking about race and politics and all that, you should probably read this book. It's really good. It's well-written. It's also short, which I advocate for short books Yes, because it's easy for you to make the time for it. Theme short book. Jay, I'm going to let you have your last word. Anything else you want to add before we get out of here? Definitely go check out the book. Um, That's pretty much it. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on. So appreciative that you're here. Loved having this conversation. Yes. We will be back next week. Um, I'm not going to tell you who our guest is. Post it on social media. Follow us at at the Stacks Pod. Um, And that's that. Thank you all so much for listening. And we will see you in the Stacks. Thank you to everyone for listening this week. And of course, thank you to Jay Connor for being our guest. Thank you all for listening so much. Please make sure that you subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and please rate and review the show. The last thing is our Patreon tote bag giveaway is going on now through August 16th. So please make sure you contribute. You're entered to win a tote bag. That's all for this week. Our theme music comes from Tagirgis. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright. And this show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>